0: Hey good evening. Uh, Welcome to uh, another edition of Bright Lights, our weekly podcast where we focus on achievements and achievers in all areas of human endeavor. Uh, Our goal is to bring to you uh, their story, their size, Uh, let them shed a bright light, be a bright light for you. Uh, A lot of times uh, achievers have a lot of things in common. I used to say to everyone, we all face uh, basically the same amount of obstacles and bad luck and things to us in life. But somehow achievers overcome all of those obstacles. They got a great attitude. They respond to things. And I've been saying for the last that for me, perspective, attitude and reaction is more important than uh, what's, what's the world bring to you. And I think most of the achievers that we have uh, kind of demonstrate that. So I uh, wasn't here live last week, and uh, I actually I hesitated to let out my audience know why. Uh, I haven't done it so far, but I will tonight. Uh, by the way, our t- tonight's guest, speaking of tonight, is Miss Michelle Benson, Mrs. Michelle Benson, uh, Senator, Minnesota Senator, Uh, candidate for governor, and I just chatted with her briefly. A well-rounded person in chemistry, public accountant, and all that good stuff. I'll let you know about that later on. Uh, But I was saying uh, uh, the reason I often hesitate to share uh, bad news, quote-unquote, about myself is that uh, I never, ever want pity, uh, and people tend to Uh, Feel sorry for you and pity you and treat you differently. And I'm just like, I I don't want to be treated differently, no matter what happens to me in life. I want people to treat me the same. Uh, But once again, I appreciate the uh, condolences. I got a lot of condolences and sympathy on my uh, sister's passing. I was down in Houston. Uh, Once again, the reason I wasn't here last week, uh, we had her memorial services. So I grew up with uh, six just great and wonderful, beautiful sisters. And I'm down to five now and my heart does hurt. Uh, but uh, I was telling someone I was uh, prepared spiritually uh, when I left home at 17. And I'm still prepared spiritually to deal with what life life bring my way. Uh, had a chance to spend some time with my family. Uh, I have, uh, my mom and dad, I have nine sisters and brothers, so most of us was together in Houston. We reminisce about our challenges and obstacles growing up. It wasn't always easy. Uh, as you mo- know about me, I grew up uh, in Natchez, Mississippi, and I'm just very proud of that city. I'm proud of where I grew up. I love the South. I love Southerners. Uh, they are misunderstood. Uh, I like talking with East Coasters who Uh, went to these fancy Ivy League schools and they think they're sharp and they think they look down on us Southerners, Uh, but uh, I don't really pay attention to them and what they talk about. Uh, uh, We just, I just had a good chance, time uh, down there reminiscing and enjoying the Southern culture. And like I said, life was challenging, but uh, we all agree that uh, faith in God uh, great parents. Uh, I know my great-grandfather, who was also a businessman. Uh, all the adults that raised us. I had mentors, older uh, uh, young men mentoring me, had great teachers. And I know people think, once again, Mississippi is backwards, but I, I think we had a great K-12 education. And that's proven uh, out by uh, what my classmates are doing and how they've uh, raised families and created wealth, uh, lived a productive life. Uh, Most of them are living, quote unquote, the American dream. Uh, We had three surgeons that came out of my graduation class down in Mississippi, just a little backward Mississippi, lawyers, accountants, too many engineers to name. Uh, which uh, my best friend Tex McLean ended up being, uh, along with myself and my other best friend Michael uh, Spock Davis. He's a surgeon uh, right now, the Hickam Bottom Boys. So, so we had a pretty good time, and and we uh, turned out okay. And that's why. And we talked about this a little bit. We get somewhat impatient about the criticism. Uh, this country and uh, how racism is stopping us from doing different things and i just never bought into that and uh, i'll just end this so i can bring on michelle uh you know the scriptures in the bible and we'll get into to religion uh one of these days and uh, as a preface all i have to say is that all the great physicists and scientists, Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, Stephen hawking they all believe in God. And if you understand math and the uh, idea of infinity, which you find in a lot of mathematical equation, uh, you'll understand where uh, God is in there whenever you see infinity. Uh, So we talked about having a great family. Uh, We talked about God. We talked about the education that we had, the faith that we had. Uh, We talked about, look, at the bottom line, it's when you got good God, good people, good food, good music. That is 95% of the joy in life right there. And we were very very fortunate to have that. So I'm rambling on here. Uh, Michelle has been patiently waiting. And so uh, let me bring on our guest tonight uh miss michelle benson hey michelle welcome to bright lights
1: happy to be here
0: how you doing tonight you got a great smile by the way i like that how you (laughs) doing tonight
1: i'm i'm happy and i was listening to what you were saying about god and science and and nature is order and beauty and logic and reason and that all science is nature and beauty and logic and reason and god is Nature, beauty, logic, reason. They all fit. So yes, someday, they do fit. Someday yeah. you and I are gonna have a, a really robust conversation yeah, about yeah, that. Yes, so I'm looking forward so that's to that. that
0: tonight. Yeah. yeah, I know.
1: Looking forward to that.
0: Cause I will share this with you before I got in further. I don't get too caught up in losing material things, but I tell people the two material things that I really missed and I get caught got caught up on it. I had a study Bible that Combine the science, just like you said, there's no inconsistency there if you really understand the science, uh, between the science and and the idea of a God. And secondly, it was my oldest but goodies collection, which I think was the best ever in the world of over a thousand songs. And uh, I, I hate to admit, I accidentally deleted them on my iPhone, so oh. and my heart is hurting on that too. But so Michelle, uh, let's get into this, uh, just a little dialogue and chat that we sure. plan every week. Uh, let's. Why don't you tell me, well, first of all, I think you grew up in Murdoch, Minnesota?
1: Yes, this town that has about 300 people now. I actually grew up south of town on a farm. Um, my brother still farmed there. My sister married a dairy farmer, and they uh, operate their dairy farm nearby, uh, and then went to the College of St. Catherine. And and like you, you mentioned your high school school. And just a really good, solid local school. Mrs. Johnson taught us diagramming. I'm sorry, Mrs. Johnson taught me in second grade spelling and basic literacy. And then Mrs. Larson taught us diagramming sentences in seventh and eighth grade. Um, I'm sure kids nowadays don't diagram sentences, but I found it very helpful in, in understanding how to structure. And then Mrs. Govig in 10th grade, taught us history, helped me to understand how our country was unique in all the world. And worse than all, I think we're still a great place and best place to live on this entire planet. But after I graduated from that very basic, good public school, I went to the College of St. Catherine, got a degree in chemistry. I met my husband while I was going to school there. He was at the Naval Academy, and we got married after he got his commissioning. We spent five years moving around the United States. He was uh, with the Navy Nuclear Submarine Corps. And we came back here to start a family, raise our kids, um, have our, well, first permanent home, shall we say. We moved a lot with the Navy, Um, close to grandparents and good schools and opportunity. And part of the reason I'm running is I feel like we're missing some of that opportunity and those good, basic values that make Minnesota
0: a great place to live. Well, you know, I talked and I normally do some background work on my guest, which probably is smart. Okay. Uh, <laughs> a couple of things, Well, before I go, I can't let where, and I didn't do enough background work, uh, uh, on you because I don't know where Murdoch, Minnesota is and oh. normally <laughs> I don't like having questions unanswered in my mind and especially today with Google. If they would had Google when I was growing yes. up, I could be a Jeopardy champion now. But where is Murdoch,
1: So you Minnesota? get on highway, highway 12 going straight out of the metro towards the west uh-huh. and drive two and a half hours or so and you'll be in Murdoch. So between Wilmer and Benson. Okay. Um, if people
0: okay. kind of know where that is. Okay. Well, uh, I, I, I had to get that clear. Uh, so uh, I was telling you earlier, uh, I looked at you majored in chemistry. Yeah. You became a certified public accountant, yeah. and now you're in politics. That says to me that uh, not everybody can do that. Let me put it that way. And I have to admit, you know, I took chemistry in college and Uh, I took accounting in college also, and those can be kind of tough, tough subjects, but somehow you combine the two of them, and how uh, does a chemistry major end up being a certified public accountant? Well,
1: curiosity, wanting to understand how things work, that is chemistry, and then Understanding how things work. I I got my MBA and sat for the CPA exam. If You want to understand how businesses operate. You have to understand the core finance, the numbers explain the business, and then you layer on that the human capacity that is necessary for a business to operate, whether it's the talent within your organization or customers. And so it really is just about continually trying to understand the system that you're working on, and I do that in politics. Um, it's easy to throw things out there and say, well, this is what I do. But you have to understand who it impacts, what the math is, how the system currently works, and how you would change it. So they all kind of use the same skills, but I can't say it was necessarily a straight line.
0: Well once again, we'll have a good conversation because that's how I ended up in just about everything. I ended. I'm i just curious of <laughs> how it worked and and I tell people I, I, I just have this thing of relying on other people to explain stuff to me or to teach me something I can go out and read it up and understand it myself instead of myself. Yeah. So we'll, we'll have that conversation too. Uh So you were a CPA and I think Deloitte Tush. Deloitte Tush. Yep. Uh, work for that. Now. Yeah, uh, and then somewhere along the line, uh, you got this idea to get involved in politics out in I think uh, Anoka, Sherborne, and Asante counties. Yeah, uh, tell me that thought process, uh, which led you to make that questionable move, Michelle.
1: Oh, well, that again, wasn't a straight line. Uh, I was working at Deloitte when our oldest son was born and they're a great company. They they let me take good maternity leave, um, but to go back would have meant resuming travel and being away from my son. And so I was a stay-at-home mom for a long time. Um, We had another son and then I ran for, I got really frustrated with, the way things were looking in Washington, D.C. They passed the Affordable Care Act, hadn't read the bill. And I have a lot of respect for our federalist structure. So the federal government's supposed to do things and the states are supposed to do things. And Minnesota, before the Affordable Care Act, had some of the lowest uninsured rates in the nation. We had affordable individual insurance with lots of choices. We had good safety net programs. And I didn't think we needed a one-size-fits-all Washington solution here in Minnesota. So instead of yelling at the TV and getting all stressed, I decided to run for office. And um, sometimes you jump into things without fully being aware of what's at the bottom. Um, but I did win that race, and I've been working on healthcare and complex issues ever since. Minnesota has a lot of good about it, and happy to stand up for what's good about our state, push back on the federal governments, and and let us be strong. I've, our country is supposed to be about strong individuals building strong states, and that's what makes our country strong.
0: Well, I like that. Uh, so, uh, you s- ran for office in 2010.
1: Yes.
0: You won. And as I understand, you've been winning ever since. Yes. Uh, uh, you're running for governor. Uh, let me, before we get to that, uh, what's the status of redistricting? here in Minnesota, and I admit I normally would know the answer to that and keep up with that, but I haven't been keeping up with that. In fact, I I, I listen to the news. I go there listening, uh, kicking and screaming because it's so low quality nowadays. Uh, I prefer to go out to other sources, but what's what's the uh, status of redistricting uh, nowadays, Michelle?
1: The House and Senate, each caucus in the House and Senate is developing a map. Those proposals will get brought forward in the special session. They'll be voted on. There will be an impasse, um, shall we say in Minnesota, because Democrats control the house, Republicans control the Senate and the governor doesn't agree with the Senate's ideas any more than the house does. So there will be no map and then the courts will decide. And that's when we'll actually get to see the courts will have to take into consideration the current map and the proposals by the House and the Senate. And I'll tell you, Mark Johnson has been really great about listening to the people of Minnesota on the Senate side. And so I trust that the map he'll bring forward, um, will be a good representation of Minnesota.
0: And for those people who are interested in this boring subject, uh, when do we, we expect for a final, well, for the legislature, for the political arm, the legislative branch to finally act before it ends up in the court. What time frame are we um, dealing with on the
1: that'll redistricting? be as soon as we go back into session. And and the first time we went through redistricting, um, we not the first time. The first time I went through redistricting, the process was very similar, and okay. so we're just we're gonna repeat courts drawing the map.
0: Okay. Now uh, before we. Once again, before we're talking about your candidacy, uh, you used to be head of a health care-related committee. Am I? Uh,
1: am. Uh, it's my, you are? Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm I the I should. Health and Human Services Committee. So um, there are some people who call it um, hell and human suffering um, because it's just such hard work. But I chose that committee because it impacts the lives of a million Minnesotans. It mm-hmm. is very complicated. I had audited hospitals when I was at Deloitte, and so I felt that I could bring something to the table. I could get up to speed quickly. Um, but if we're going to have to make hard decisions, people always want to look to Health and Human Services for ways to cut. And so if we're going to make hard choices, I wanted to seat at the table to make sure that we prioritize who we were going to protect.
0: Okay. Uh- Briefly, Michelle, because the word complicated always catches my attention. Uh, what's, what's uh, briefly, what's complicated about uh, serving on that committee and the things that you oversee?
1: So it's the lives of a million Minnesotans. Mm-hmm. It is everything from licensing medical professionals to licensing hospitals to licensing nursing homes. But when it comes down to the lives of individuals, it's everything from child protection to the sex offender program, to basic health care for people who are low income or working poor, to regulating the insurance market in Minnesota. So when I say complicated, that's mm. what okay. I mean. Okay. Uh,
0: you mentioned uh, the uh, kind of insurance part of it, the hospital parts of it. Uh, what the. Uh, when you look back over your time on that committee, what do you look back on and see some of the proudest accomplishments in those different areas? Just give me one. We aren't going to sure. name and, all.
1: And there are actually two. Two? Okay. That, and and there have been so many things. You have a million people. Everybody's life matters. Um, mm-hmm. and, and through the pandemic, what our, what our health care providers have done what our Mm -hmm. nursing homes and hospitals and group homes have been through. I will never forget the nurse who called me and said, I've had to do three terminal extubations today. And I don't know that I can do this anymore. So that, that breaks your heart. But then there are moments that absolutely lift you up. And I met a woman who had been sex trafficked from the time she was quite young. So didn't graduate high school and she had been helped by a particular program. Senator Paul Anderson had the bill and I was moving it through committee and she had brought herself back. She was living the path that she was supposed to be on. She had this beautiful six year old daughter and that daughter was so proud that she was learning her numbers and was so excited. This little girl was so excited to tell me what was going on in her life. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this mom went from the hardest place I could ever imagine to raising this beautiful little girl and the resiliency of human beings and the good that can come out of giving people chances and helping them out of trouble. So those are those were two things that I will that changed me as a person. And I'm grateful.
0: Okay. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your gubernatorial candidacy. And I know just a little bit about politics. I haven't been involved in it that long. But uh, when I think about uh, the race for governor, you have to uh, make inroads in outstate suburban areas and the metro area. I mean, if you're planning on winning, uh, do you see any... Uh, differences in the issues or conversation you have uh, when you're dealing with those different, and I'll call them demographics, statewide demographics. Uh, What do you see the differences in? Well, and after you talk that, if there are any, what are the uh, commonalities, I guess? Because at the end of the day, I think ultimately we have to acknowledge our differences, but focus on our commonness, a commonality uh, to uh, define and work towards solving issues and help really helping people lives uh, rather than just focusing on votes. So uh, long question, but what do you see as some of the differences in approaches and strategies of those different uh, demographics? And what do you see as some of the commonalities?
1: And when you talk about various geographies, Mm -hmm. Um, There'll be differences like what's the key economic driver for that area. And so you want to make sure you listen to those folks and that they know that you're going to do your best to understand those key economic drivers. Schools are going to be different throughout the state. When we talk about access to school choice, that's going to be different depending on population density, geography. Um, But let's talk about things that unite us. Everybody wants to be safe. So public safety is something I talk about everywhere I go, because people's lives are all impacted when they don't feel safe and education. Education is a game changer and access, for example, the school that I went to, there were 44 kids in my graduating class. Now that school needs access to AP classes. So how do we make sure that those kids have access to advanced placement classes or college in school that might be taken for granted in a suburban district, but let's also talk about high standards for everybody. Let's talk about choice so that parents can have their kids in a school that meets that child's needs, partner with teachers in that school. That's going to be true across the state, parents partnering with teachers for the potential of the, the full potential of that child makes a difference in that child's life forever and parents across the state are going to want that and then opportunity regardless of what the economic driver of your region is you want the opportunity to afford a home get to and from work succeed at your chosen profession to help your kids become more prosperous than you were those are truths across the state and so let's talk about the things we share Um, but let's talk about them in different ways so that people know that where they live and their life experience matters. We're not a one-size-fits-all Minnesota. We saw, we saw through the shutdown, we needed different things in different places. We've learned a lot um, through COVID and through the shutdowns. And frankly, I think public safety, education, and opportunity are the key issues that every Minnesotan wants.
0: OK, thank you. Uh, Which is a good segue into some of the issues I've seen that you are uh, really care about and have put a priority on it. Uh, Accountable government. And I think you had some other adjectives in there that I don't quite recall. But uh, what do you mean about accountable government? And what would uh, Governor Benson do to improve accountability in government?
1: One of my roles in the legislature was to be on the Legislative Audit Commission and the Office of the Legislative Auditor finds waste, fraud and abuse, looks at priorities that the legislature brings forward. And the Department of Human Services went through some really bad years. um, Rolling out MNsure, which is our state's health exchange, went through some significant problems. And we've learned a lot from that. First of all, we need to expect transparency and accountability at every level. We need people wanting to serve the citizens of Minnesota, not just stay you know, huddled in their special project and worry about getting more funding, but actually serve the people of Minnesota. And so we can take the lessons learned through my experience with the Legislative Audit Commission, but also my observations of successful programs at the Department of Human Services, um, I think those are ready to be applied across the board. Well,
0: uh, you just reminded me of something, Michelle. Uh, sure. The whole debacle, debacle uh, with I think it was the Health and Human Services that was uh, overpaid uh, Native Americans mm-hmm. for some type of drug program, and looked like every time I looked up. Uh, they were overpaying or mismanaging uh, funds. And I think the last mm-hmm. I remember was we was almost in the $100 million or so or more. Exactly. It, it was were, was anyone ever held accountable for that? Because no. as a taxpayer, I, mean, yeah. I was I was steaming that about is that.
1: A, that is a problem. Um, so Carolyn Hamm, who was responsible for the Office of Inspector General, didn't have expertise to do the work that needed to be done to make sure payments were actually matching what they were supposed to and the people in the particular grants department where that was happening just kept doing the same thing that had always been done and never stopped to say well this doesn't actually make sense and that's part of the individual accountability and transparency that needs to be part of a culture of government Don't just keep doing things the same way. You need to check to make sure you're following federal law and that you're delivering the services that you're actually required to by law and not just the things that you want.
0: Well, I'm not going to get into it too much here. Once again, my sources of information and knowledge, I very seldom rely on the news, but I normally have direct knowledge. And I'll just say that I know people out there who know the rules and regulations of receiving funds and they know how to manipulate them Uh uh, to improperly enrich themselves at taxpayer's expense. So I'll leave that there for now. Uh, Hey, we also talked a little bit about education. That seems to be one of your passions. It's one of my passions too, uh, because I I really believe education and knowledge is the key to the whole thing. Uh, I've been uh, most of my life trying to get uh, different cultures to really put a value on education where we are as willing to spend $200 on tutoring as we are on sneakers. Uh, tell me, what, are, what do you see as the challenges currently uh, in our state, in the area of education? And once again, what would uh, Governor Benson do about these challenges?
1: As you're aware, we have one of the largest opportunity gaps in the entire country. Our minority student reading scores are in the bottom five. And if you can't read, how are you supposed to learn anything else? If you can't read by the time you're in fourth grade, then how are you going to study science? And you're just off track for graduation. If you don't graduate from high school, we know you're going to either end up, you know, depending on a program in the Department of Human Services or in jail. You just have a much higher propensity for having real struggles in life. So it is immoral to leave children trapped in schools that fail, okay? These kids have all the potential in the world. And so let's make sure that they can be in a school that challenges their potential. Let's make sure moms and dads partner with teachers. We talked about that earlier. The money following the child is the way we do that because then parents are empowered and teachers and parents our partners we cannot we cannot disregard the role of teachers in this system but we need to elevate the role of parents and make it about the kids not the system
0: yeah and once again uh, at the risk of repeating myself too much uh i've been on record and i will stay on record of saying that there's certain uh areas of the achievement gaps that educators would never ever resolve I hope I'm wrong, but I've I've dealt with them and I know how they look at things and how they prioritize things. I know the infrastructure there. I know the priorities there uh, based on what I'm seeing. Educating the children is not a number one priority. It's not the number one priority. There's a lot of other things going on there. And then the other thing, too, and, and this is the ultimate challenge to me, is that even with charter schools, I tell people with charter schools, if you think about it, in order for parents to choose to send their children to, to, to a charter school, they have to be involved in their education. I think uh, one of the challenges is that we have children whose parents are not involved and almost incapable of being involved uh, in their education. And we need to come up with the way to educate those children. And I agree with you. Uh, I think when you got a, a government monopoly on public, called public education without competition, uh i don't yeah. think some I, I think i really trust uh business people to solve issues and problems a little bit better than government and i think if we open it up and the money fo- uh follow the child i think you have some very smart business people that are coming up with solution to a lot of these things that the public schools and the teachers union cannot uh, i've been on record about as far as governor waltz uh, i call him our educator in chief uh kind of tongue-in-cheek uh putting the head of the teachers union in charge of the department of education and yeah. I'm, i've been up front no. uh i think they are big part of the problem in the achievement gap and well i don't think it i know they are and to put those uh, head of the teachers union in charge of the department of education is really saying uh right. we're not concerned about solving the achievement gap as far as i'm concerned so, okay so we talked about the achievement gap and things like that uh there was also some uh, pandemic regulations, if you call it that, or decrees, I'll call it more like a decree. Executive ex- orders. Ex- yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, that affected education. I know my little grandson, I saw the impact of him not going to school. I knew uh, the and i do a lot of reading of studies that don't show up on in the news and uh, i mean there's so many studies out there with so much critical information that the general public isn't getting but i knew the uh, uh low uh probabilities of him uh catching or spreading or uh, knew the mortality rate among school-age children and it just seems like seems like we were overdoing things and i'm being polite here but what did you think of all these uh regulation during the pandemic Uh, and some of them still going on, as far as our children education. And somewhere in there, I think the teachers union is involved too. But uh, what was your take on how we handle uh, the pandemic uh, as far as education is concerned? And What would you have done differently?
1: Well, in March of 2020, I think everybody agreed. We didn't know what was going on with the virus and who it was impacting. And so shutting down schools was the right thing then. The problem comes in the fall, August of 2020. There were enough studies to tell us elementary students could be safely back in class. And the teachers' union wanted none of it. And so that I think parents are more awake than they've ever been. They saw their their second graders being given YouTube videos and then questions to answer. That's not education. They saw, you know, a seventh grader being read stories for 30 minutes instead of being told you read the book and then you write a paper. And so the opportunity gap got wider. Our kids got further behind. And when you look at the mental and emotional stress that happened to those kids and their families, moms and dads trying to hold it together who had stable homes. What happens if you're a single mom trying to work a job and now you've got a fourth grader at home trying to do their homework What does that do to your household? What does that do to the child's education, to the mother's ability to work? I mean, across the board, there wasn't a family with a child in school who wasn't impacted negatively by our elementary schools being shut down when science said they were safe and that was demonstrated private schools across the country.
0: Yeah, I think you mentioned uh, the studies that was out there and it was out there very early. I mean, it's just incredible. Uh, what uh, the media isn't informing people of. I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I don't yeah. want to get on my own soapbox here, but the, the dysfunctionality but- of our media and press mm-hmm. and journalism mm-hmm. is just—it's—they're pathetic. I, I really, if you if you like me, you go out and research this for yourself and you look for information for yourself. It's just incredible what they're not telling people. But you were going to say something, Michelle.
1: No, but you can look at evidence. So the fact that our kids are further behind was a McKinsey study, not some right wing group, not, you know, COVID deniers. They actually studied what happened to the kids. And then you look at schools across the world that were open and across this country that were open and made the decisions that having elementary students in school was important it was available information at the time and it damaged families because it wasn't listened to.
0: Yeah. And part of my uh, keeping on track of this and just learning is that you read information from all over the world and different Mm -hmm. countries and what they're doing and their approach and the studies they are basing their approach on. and, and, And you look at what we're doing And you really, like you say, question a lot of it. Uh, My personal type of uh, grievance and interest is that we mentioned already having an achievement gap. And then you put these things in place and it grows wider. And then, this is another segue, Michelle. uh, Then we get into uh, this whole critical race theory, which to me, you know, it's not really helping us read, write, and do arithmetic. Uh, And what we're really doing is, uh, educating people, I, and I kind of halfway jokingly say this, we're really educating people to grow up to be protesters, to hate this country, and protest everything, to be protesters, and we aren't equipping them with skills. What do you think about this whole critical race theory that I think did impact a lot of uh, race recent race this year? Uh, what's your take on that? And I know that uh, at the state level, uh, we didn't make a decision on it. Uh, uh, we right. kicked the ball down the road for a couple of years. As far as I'm concerned, it should have been kicked in the, in the trash bin. But uh, what do you think about uh, this whole critical race theory and its impact on uh, education?
1: Um, even if it's not named, if you're teaching children to be divided against each other, then you are, you are destroying their ability to reconcile in the future and to be connected as community. But you've also taken the focus off of what's essential. Can they read? Can they do basic math? Do they understand history? And when I say history, I mean warts and all.
0: Mm-hmm. But if
1: you're intentionally dividing people, you are undermining their God-given potential and the way that they could connect and build each other up going forward. Mm-hmm. And And so let's focus on what we all need, which is to care about each other, to know how to read, to do basic math, and get ready for moving into the world. School is supposed to be about getting you ready to move into the world, not dividing you against each other.
0: Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I have a lot of uh, friends and family members who are hardcore Democrats, I guess, and, uh, I don't know, like, uh, and I'm saying, what I said to them is that I thought, and I'm gonna be diplomatic, uh, the defund the police idea was questionable It probably the most questionable uh, political policy idea I've ever heard. Uh, well, let's not be that political, it's just a dumb idea. And that's what yeah. I said to them. And I, I said, I thought you couldn't come up with any dumber ideas. And somehow you came up with critical race theory teaching that really is not educating our children but indoctrinating them. And then to top it off, uh, you come up with uh, giving reparations to illegal immigrants. I mean, I'm like, How, where, where are you guys at? And, and I saw where uh, James Carville, uh, who's a very uh, influential uh, operative in the political circle, he called it stupid work- wokeness. And I don't know a better way of putting it. And I hope we get away from that. I hope a message was sent uh, because I'm concerned about the people in my community. And mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, it's business development, economic development, companies bringing companies into community to employ people, give them high paying job, but the members in the community can be part of the governance board and management where they can help set aside money to send the members of the community to colleges and post-secondary school. I think the education is a key component. Uh, I think uh, we need uh, the children in these communities when they graduate from high school, they read at high school level. Uh, yeah, anything they, short of that uh, they,
1: they really need understand. to graduate. Yeah, we, we need yep, to. Yep. Can we? Can we? Okay. Yeah. Graduation becomes a priority, right? And to graduate, you need to know how to read and do basic math. And and when you talk about businesses coming into into your community, if they if people who invest in businesses or want to grow a business think of community is unsafe they're not going to move there. Right. So defunding the police was a radical idea. Thank God the people of Minneapolis rejected it. Okay. If you want to call 911, there better be somebody else on the other end who can help you get out of whatever problem you've got. If you think about what law enforcement does and what first responders do, just be grateful. Yes. You need to reform some police officers who've gotten off track. But fundamentally, we need safe communities. And then those businesses are gonna be looking for an educated workforce. They're gonna be looking for a workforce that knows how to read, knows how to do basic math, and, and has the skills to help their business grow. And then they'll move in. It's all about partnership. Safe community, educated population, and then people investing and growing that's how you change a neighborhood
0: Mm -hmm. and well the other thing i say to people in the business i want people from the community to start and own These businesses and Mm -hmm. that's where you create generational wealth and and put money in people's pockets and and help people uh, go out to eat with their families, send their children to school, not to be uh, sweating about affording mortgage or rent and those type of things. I think we need to be focusing on and rather than all these questionable uh, type of activities and policies.
1: Owning their home instead of being subject to the rental market. Think about what happens when you have a stable job and you can own your home and your kids are getting educated. Your life looks very different than when your community doesn't have employment opportunities, when you can't find a house that you can afford. I don't mean an apartment. I mean a home. Home, home ownership matters. And when you don't trust your kids' school to educate them, your life is very different.
0: Oh, I agree. And one wanna... of my wife and I, we invest in, we put our money where I'm out there. So we do invest in, uh, inner city for profit businesses and you, you take a risk there. But what I told one of these entrepreneurs and he's a very talented little guy, uh, I shouldn't call him a little guy. He's a talented young man. Uh, I'm, uh, more interested in financial justice than social justice. I'll leave that to other people to work the social justice in, but I'm trying to uh, get some financial justice and put money in people's pockets. So, okay, so we talked about education achievement gap, pandemic regulation, we talked about choice. Uh, let's go to another uh, subject area that's really impacting the state. And by the way, uh, i've been around here long enough to know that minnesota is trending towards uh negative things uh the worst and uh i'm of the belief that uh one single party uh monopoly on power and government is behind a lot of it i think we should be looking at more diversity in our government uh but uh what uh, I've been reading about uh, the average uh, yearly income of people moving out of Minnesota being over 200,000. Those moving in uh, is roughly thirty seven thousand dollars a year. And, you know, once again, you don't have to be a genius to figure out those numbers are not good uh, for the long run. Interests of the state. In fact, of all the statistics that I've heard, even, you know, given the deficit, and I'm a numbers guy, that's the one yeah. number that really stood out uh, uh, for me, on me. And I'm like, boy, this state is headed down the wrong path. The city is headed down the wrong path. Uh, what do you think about those numbers? And what can we do about them, Michelle? Um, well, first
1: of all, we have higher taxes than Massachusetts. We're right up there with New Jersey. And so we're literally chasing talent out of this state because of our tax rates. Mm -hmm. And so let's make our state competitive again. We're going to have to bring down tax rates. There are a number of states that are actually moving to a zero income tax Mm -hmm. because they want to remain competitive. And there are neighboring states. So this Mm -hmm. isn't far-fetched. So can we get out of the top 10? Because being in the top 10 of taxes is not like being the top 10 for football, or God forbid, reading scores. Wouldn't it be great to be in the top 10 of reading scores? We're in the top five for taxes and in the bottom five for minority reading scores. So, you know what? Our reading scores aren't a money issue, they're a standards mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. And our GDP, so our economic growth in 2019, was in the bottom half. Usually, Minnesota is an economic leader. So we're going to need to change our tax environment, our regulatory environment, and grow that talented workforce, make sure people are safe, because that's how we grow an economy. Right.
0: Well, once again, I don't want to make it about me personally, but I want uh, Michelle, if you're governor, to know that for the first time in my years here in Minnesota, I'm seriously thinking about moving out of this state. I probably will. I'm serious, I don't like what's going on, the trend in this city here. Uh, it's just crazy and violence and everything else, and you got crazy people in charge. Uh, and then, uh, you know when you reach retirement age, the taxes thing, there's a lot of states don't tax retirement money and uh, accounts and things like that. And so uh, even though it hurts me, I, I probably will be moving out of Minnesota, but if someone gets in there and change some of these policies, it's not too late to convince me to stay here, me and my family. Uh, so, uh, okay, and so Lacey, mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. what happens to your grandkids when you leave the state?
0: Well. I'm
1: not trying to guilt no, you. No, 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 no. That's a good question. That's,
0: uh, because and uh, my wife and I talk about this and kind of laugh about it. I mean, you know, we watch these CSI stories and things like that. Mm-hmm. There are actually grandparents who do some crazy things so they don't, grandkids don't move uh, too far from them. So that's a very good point because mm-hmm. those people who know me, who knows my little grandson, he's the he's the joy and heart of my life. And so that's a good point. So I might have to bribe his parents, my son and, and everybody to move down with us some kind of way. But that's a very good point. or. I'll save enough money to fly back (laughs) at least once a month or every weekend. I'll just fly back and see you. Go ahead. Uh
1: Craig and I came back here to raise our kids so we could be close to grandparents. Now, they're still quite a ways from the cities, but when you tax Social Security, when you tax retirement, when you tax success that people have, you know, as they get older towards their retirement years, you compel them to move out of the state. And then you don't show up as, as great as it is to fly back and visit your grandkids or fly them down so they can spend Christmas through New Year's with you. You're not at their baseball game. You're not sitting next to them in church. You don't show up at the school pageants and cheerlead them when they get the solo um, in, the, in the third grade pageant. And so there is a quality of life issue when we start chasing people out of this state with tax rates.
0: So... You told me I gotta consider moving the whole family, grandkids, and all with me. <laughs> so that's the. Way okay, I'm let's fix it. This so they at like, don't have to move. Okay, yeah. I
1: understand people who want to move because of the weather; they shouldn't be chased out because right, of our right.
0: environment. And just quickly back to this whole police reform, defunding the police. You know what amazed me? First of all, that it got on the ballot in the first place. I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm thinking about moving out. Something like that I even got on the ballot in the first place. And then secondly, uh, it I just found out it only won by 12%. An yeah. idea like that gets on the ballot and loses by the only 12%. And that tells me the trend of the city and the people living in the city is they're scaring me with some of this stuff. And keep in mind. That I live in North Minneapolis, where I see what they're doing to our standard of living, and uh, we got people like that in charge, and voters we'll keep voting them in for whatever reason. I can't figure it out. What kind of logic and stuff they got in there? Okay, good. I'm gonna get off of that soap box. Uh, so I've seen some uh, ideas of yours on energy yeah. and uh, policies in the. Energy area. Uh, Why don't you uh, tell, uh, let our audience know how you feel about that particular issue and what are you planning on doing about it to make it better?
1: The cost of energy impacts every single family and every business. It is just like taxes. Okay, you have to have electricity and you have to heat your home. Businesses have to have electricity to run their machines, fuel to run their machines. So we should have an all of the above approach because we do need to think about the environmental impact of energy policy. I have a a little mnemonic device, so we need reliable energy. That means when you turn on the switch, you have power generated. Windmills and solar panels are not necessarily reliable, but they can be part of the mix. A resilient grid so we don't have what happened in texas have up here okay Uh Uh reasonably priced again your family budget should matter and it should be balanced with environmental impact and the last is respectful of the environment so let's look at nuclear power it is zero carbon it is very reliable Uh, my husband was on a Navy nuclear submarine. they are people who figured out how to do small nuclear safely and, Mm -hmm. and no, we're not going to use naval reactors here in Minnesota, but it is possible for us to have small reactors properly located throughout the state. So we have zero carbon, which helps the environment, global warming. Um, it can be very reliable because they just nuclear power plants run at 80% all the time. They don't come on and off like wind and solar. Resilient. we can have multiple sites and then respectful of the environment. Um, It can be all part of that mix. We can get large hydro, which is a reliable renewable resource out of Manitoba. We can include that in our mix. And then we can be open to innovation for how we store energy generated by wind and solar so that they can become part of a stable mix on our electric grid.
0: Well, that's a very thoughtful answer, actually, because it's taken into consideration the various Mm trade-offs you have to make. And uh, a lot of times people don't take into consideration there's no perfect answer to any of these things. It's all about trade-offs. And one of the, and, and by the way, uh, when I started really looking at issues, the two ones I really wanted to research was climate change and uh, lack of housing. And the housing is a kind of a complex kind of a issues. issue. Both of them, are climate change, yes, also. But once again, uh, well, I started with climate change, and you know, I'm I'm a simple-minded country boy, and I'm proud of it. But I'm like. I kept hearing that 97% of the world scientists ever uh, support climate change and blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, wait a minute. If 97% of the scientists uh, agree with it, why every time I hear the subject being discussed is politicians and celebrities? Where are the scientists uh, that they hide from? Where are all these scientists? Uh, to me, that's just Science common sense. Isn't that, yeah. Yeah.
1: Science isn't a yeah. popularity contest, so... Right. Global temperatures probably are increasing. Um, Can we directly correlate carbon to that? Probably not to a scientific certainty, but there are people concerned enough that they are willing to make different energy choices. We should make sure that those energy choices are available in the market so that people who are concerned um, have the opportunity to purchase net zero carbon energy.
0: Yeah. And yeah, I I agree so much with that. And as you do the studies and listen to other people, once again, stuff you don't hear on our media, uh, who talks about the trade-offs and the challenges and and everything, and some of the ideas that they have will reduce it, maybe cost $3 trillion and then reduce it 1% and and, uh, the uh, approach that we have on uh, that developing nation, even like China and India have that they are contributing to it. When you start looking at all that, and then you learn that this 97%, and when you start looking at the details behind something, it's a rig, it's a rig number two. Uh, 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 so we
1: should not let China dictate our energy policy. We shouldn't let anyone else in the world dictate the energy policy of the United States of America, because China will work with their allies to make sure that the United States has slowed economic growth. Part of that is controlling our supply of energy while at the same time, they're building coal plants hand over fist. It's the same with mining. They are not safely mining. We can do that in Minnesota. They have terrible work conditions. We have good work conditions here in Minnesota. So let's not let China drag us around by the nose and tell us what our policies should be. Let's have policies that are good for Minnesota and good for the United States.
0: And we talked earlier about, uh, I forgot which particular issue, what we have in common. I think that's the common thing. Uh, If we ever going to get to, Tackling some of these very complex and tough issues, Mm -hmm. we have to think of it what we have in common. And, you know, I tell everybody what I, the common thing we have, we're all on this planet together. Uh, We all have children and grandchildren that we love and want to leave behind a clean environment. And even things like we all eat fish from the lakes and the oceans and things. So let's assume that everybody has an interest in solving this issue. And even though they got all kinds of different ideas, why can't we get together and solve this with the understanding that we all have the same incentive to leave this planet better than we found in the, And of course, from a spiritual kind of, religious kind of perspective, God did put us in as caretakers of this and we should take it very seriously. Uh, okay, so energy—we talked about that. Another item that I saw—this, uh, which I was surprised because not too many politicians I find are talking about this nowadays. is the whole issue of data privacy.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Tell us yeah. what you see uh, as an uh, issue to address in the area of data privacy, and how uh, would uh, Governor Michelle? Uh, go about doing something about it?
1: Well, first of all, there's a huge education opportunity. Now that big tech has decided to collect information on all of us, I think people are keenly aware that their data is everywhere. So when it comes to government data, government data should be public unless there's a duly passed law that makes it non-public or private. Um, your personal information that the government collects should be private again, unless there's a law that the public has been made aware of, and that private data needs to be collected. So that cybersecurity, that is training of individuals um, to respect your private data. And then corporate protections, for example, your health records shouldn't be able to be shared with Google. Full stop, Minnesota's health records law Keeps your data from being shared with Google. A federal health records law allows it to be shared with Google Health Analytics without your knowledge or consent. So when it comes to your data, it is yours and it should only be shared with your informed consent. And as we move into the age of AI, as we move into big data, it's going to be really important for the people of this state to stand up for their privacy rights
0: and for government to protect those rights. Uh, those are uh, all very good points, especially as you mentioned, big tech, because those of us who remember at least I, our eighth grade civics, uh, I started off with the idea, well, it's different if the private companies got it versus the right. government. And, and and people understand uh, who, who understand civics know exactly what I'm talking about. But then you find out that the secret arrangement between big tech and government oh, yeah. that, yeah, that any information they got, yeah. the government also have too. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, that used to be uh, let the buyer beware type of attitude. And what amazes me is that the number of citizens who either don't know that you are on social media and you're doing Google searches, they're capturing everything they know about you, uh, they know you, everything you do, where you go, And they're selling it to all kinds of people, and they're giving it to the government, and basically you are giving up your privacy for the right to a free social media app. And I don't think people have really thought about that. Uh, I was telling someone, because of what I do, my job and uh, everything, I almost have to be on social media now, but I'm looking forward to the day uh, that... I'm not on social media and I'm not, I don't even have a cell phone. I'm looking forward to that day because just the whole business model of Facebook, Twitter, Google, I just have a serious problem and issue with it. And especially when we find out big tech is not uh, impartial
1: and they're censoring
0: people and things like that. I just have a serious problem. Yes, Michelle.
1: They're also building a digital profile of your kids. Yes, And so is your school district putting your child on an app and is your child's data being shared? And do you have informed consent? So these are the kinds of questions we need to ask of all government systems. Cause under the authority of the government, if you're collecting data, it should be private unless it is given by informed consent to a fully disclosed entity. So there's a, there's a lot of work to do okay. on this, but it has been a passion of mine since I got to the legislature because there's nothing more personal than your information.
0: Yeah. And we're going to start wrapping it up pretty soon. But, you know, as the host, I have certain liberties. Uh, so I, I tell everyone I remember when I was growing up. And that's the nice thing, I guess, by growing old and stuff, is that we used to have uh, uh information about, concerns about communism and the fact that the government know everything about you and they track you and everything, and all those things that they scared the heck out of us about communism when we were growing up has come true here in this country. I mean, it's incredible. And I know a lot of young people out there who are not old enough and been around to go through all this and know about all this. Uh, They don't see anything wrong. But people like me who remember everything that they had bad to say about communism, I'm seeing it right here in America today. And so that's why I'm concerned and that's why I'm involved. uh, Because like you, I'm concerned about the future of this country. And I'm looking for what type of country we're going to leave our grandchildren. So, Michelle, uh, one more uh, issues area, and then we'll start wrapping it up and let you tell me. Uh, some things this host was not uh, uh, prescient, I think that's a word, uh, enough to bring up. Uh, but let's talk about the whole issue of health care, which sure. I think is challenging. And I think fundamentally, and I, I don't I don't know whether we can put that genie back in this bottle here. Uh, we don't want uh, government-run health care. We don't want that. But uh, right now, we have basically a lot of people just depending on their jobs, the healthcare. And we understand the history of it and how it got into place. But all I know, and I'm just being honest, uh, and, and there used to be a time when healthcare were free. You had great healthcare and it was very cheap. Your employers offered it, and deductibles and co payments were low. Now that's all changes, high deductibles and things like that. And when it was like that, and even to a certain extent now, I hardly ever looked at at, at at my hospital bill, my medical bills, and stuff because it was paid for. And somehow, and I think you mentioned that uh, we have to have individuals have more of a stake in the cost of healthcare. So you like to me that's the start. Uh, we need to understand the relationship between big farmer and the medical community. Uh, we perhaps need to uh, reevaluate our whole approach. To healthcare, where you do whatever you want, eating whatever you want, get sick, and we got a pill for it. And you could be on this pill for the rest of your life. Uh, That's just my input, uh, Michelle. I didn't mean to set you up for anything or influence your answer, but what do you see as the uh, big issues in healthcare, and how do we uh, go about solving them? Well,
1: obviously, cost and access are are very big issues. Um, you talk about being tied to an employer plan. It, we could do an hour just on the healthcare market. So I'm going to focus on what we've learned coming out of COVID. Okay. COVID was an historic event. We're coming out of this pandemic. We got really good at telehealth in some areas, including mental health, mm-hmm. chemical dependency, access to specialists. So, think about what happens when you have improved access with probably lower costs, but demand good or as good as or better outcomes than an in person visit. So, if you live in a deep rural county and you can be at home and get feedback on a lab test that you have instead of having to drive to the office, um, make a, a care plan, I think that is a game changer. For a lot of parts of this state, and not just deep rural, because we have some places in the inner city where people don't have adequate access to transportation, but they could be on their phone doing an audiovisual call for a check-in for mental health issues. Um, so people who have chronic depression, anxiety, have hard time getting out of the house. What if we can improve their access by using this technology that we really expanded during COVID? So, I think that's some good news coming out of COVID, good news for healthcare. Another bit of good news coming out of COVID, I think we've all become much more aware of our individual responsibility for our health. Now, that doesn't mean you do your own appendectomy, but you take good care of your body and that helps you mitigate disease, whether it is contracting COVID or heart disease or cancer. The better you take care of yourself, the stronger your body is to fight if you have a medical complication. And so I hope that's a second good thing that comes out of this pandemic.
0: Okay. Well, knowing that you're on the uh, committee that deals with these issues in the Minnesota Senate, uh, perhaps we'll circle back around and just have a conversation on healthcare because there are so many little things. And once again, in addressing uh, issues within the inner city community. Uh, what I tell people, there's a lot of dots you need to understand and connect to solve these issues. If you miss any of those dots, it's going to be very challenging. And I'll just tell you, one of my pet peeves, and we might not want to do anything, is just portion size. Uh, that's one of my pet peeves, is that. Uh,
1: yeah, for me, I don't think it's the governor governor's place to tell you what size portion I'll- you have um but you can share you know yeah oh, yeah yeah
0: yeah, yeah. And, and that's a good point and i was always going to point out once again uh going back to our eighth grade civics or my eighth grade civics. i don't know what other people took there. and said i'm just a big believer in the idea of a small federal government limited government and stuff Amen. and i don't want to get involved in anything i think we need to get rid of a lot of the cabinets and all this and, and involvement in state issues that uh, uh, the framers of the Constitution imagined to push down the state level. And whether you're talking government or management, when I was in corporate management, uh, especially when we're having all kinds of issues out there, one of the goals was to push decision making down in the organization. And that's what we need to do at a government level too. Uh, I want to run into the guy who raised my taxes. I want to run into him at the gas station or the grocery store. And yeah. I think that's the idea that we had in mind, framers had in mind, they didn't have in mind someone being a senator for 50 years and and dying in the office after being in, you know, I mean, all this kind of stuff and the influence of lobbyists and things like that. But that's a whole nother conversation for our next interview. Uh, right now, uh, I give all of my guests, like I said, a chance to uh, bring up any area that uh, I probably should have brought up as a host. If I, once I'm cooking and really good at this, I won't be missing any of these areas. But every okay. once in a while, I do. So bring up a area, Michelle. If, if there's any uh, that uh, you wanted to address that I was not prescient, I think this enough to uh, bring up and talk.
1: I think you. I think you talked about some really key issues. But as we look at the next year's election. Let's look at where Minnesota goes from here. So we have mining, we have forestry, we have great ag land, we have really talented people. And you you see the entrepreneurial drive. I listened to you and the stories about the people that you're investing in, in your community. And so going forward, how do we make Minnesota strong? How do we make us safe? How do we make us the best state we can possibly be? I think it's empowering individuals making sure they're safe and educated and they see a future here not moving their whole family to Texas Lacey I want you I want your family to be here because it is a safe and good place to raise a family and grow a business and that's my mission Um, let's talk about where Minnesota goes from here okay well
0: I'm going to look forward to uh, the leadership of the city, the state, this county to do some things to make me change my mind. Uh, and hopefully we can get that done. Uh, so, once again, thanks, Michelle, for being our guest tonight. Uh, we really appreciated it. Uh, keep up the smiles and go out there and work hard. Uh, and good luck on your campaign. Uh, so, thank you very much. And say, uh, maybe one of these days I get to meet uh, your husband, a naval guy. I got some uh letters from the naval academy all the military academies to go there and i kind of regret i didn't i'll tell him about my story where i was in rotc at the university of minnesota for three days but uh that's for another time and (laughs) and
1: i tell you he does recruiting for the naval academy as a blue and gold officer and there's there is nothing like the the process of going through that and recruiting people out of places like Minneapolis and St. Paul, there's so much potential there. And so if you have a kid who's really willing to push themselves, it doesn't matter where they live, they should look into one of those service academies. And And someday, Lacey, we'll get together and we'll talk about that.
0: Yeah. Okay. So to my audience, thanks for tuning in tonight. Thanks, Michelle. Uh, if the audience want to support this podcast, go out to LaceyJohnson.com. And Michelle, I will be talking to you soon. And uh, I dedicated, uh, this program to my late sister, Bridget Johnson, and let her know that uh, I will always love her and miss her. So thanks everyone. Thanks Michelle. We'll talk soon.
1: Thank you. Good evening.
0: Bye-bye.